We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 552 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Tuesday, April 18th, 2023, and the National Football League, the NFL for short, uh, it has received the terms of the deal for Dan Snyder to sell the commanders to Josh Harris. Multiple reports on Monday evening slash Monday night that the NFL has received the terms of the deal between Dan and Josh for review and that next the league will review the deal and return it to the parties for alteration if need be or for signatures. Yes, signatures as in the signing of the deal. Now, there still would be other necessary steps like the deal being sent to the NFL's finance committee for vetting and the sale being voted on by NFL owners, but we are nearing the completion of something that was a pie in the sky dream just six months ago. Hello and welcome to this Tuesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. It was on Monday night that we in the first round of the NBA playoffs had the Philadelphia 76ers taking a 2-0 lead on the Brooklyn Nets with a 96-84 win. Seated together at the game were 76ers managing partner Josh Harris and Washington, D.C. area billionaire Mitchell Rails, who of course is a key part of Harris's group that is buying the commanders. A lovely sight to see Harris and Rails, Rails and Harris, our two saviors hanging out together. Uh, next segment, I actually have a few Commanders football developments for Monday to discuss with you, including the start of the team's offseason program, an offseason program for which edge defender Chase Young on Monday reportedly was in attendance. Uh, that was significant for several reasons. I'll also get into the relevance for the commanders of the mega money contract extension that Philadelphia Eagles quarterback Jalen Hurts is receiving. Uh, that news broke on Monday morning. And then after that, not one, but two terrific guests. First up, NFL insider Arif Hassan of Pro Football Network. Uh, he is going to provide us with a surgical dissection 
of this guy, Brian Davis, the former Duke basketball player, the former NBA player, the former part owner of DC United, by the way. Uh, This is the guy who supposedly has a $7 billion cash offer to buy the Commanders. This also is a guy who has a sketchy, shady, highly questionable business past. Arif has done some extremely thorough research into that past. Wait until you hear what Arif has come across. And Arif is going to talk to us about what the Commanders are getting in Josh Harris as their next owner, including the significance of analytics. Uh, Arif, like me, big analytics guy. But do you know who else is a big analytics guy. Josh Harris. The commanders may be about to become a team at the forefront of the analytics movement in the NFL. You know that excites me. Uh, And speaking of analytics, so then welcome to the show, Peter Hassett, uh, co-founder of the great capital site, Russian Machine Never Breaks, RMNB. Uh, Peter is a huge Caps fan, writes a lot of terrific analytics-based stuff on the Caps, and we are going to conduct a deep dive on the state of the Caps, of their first non-playoff season in nine seasons, and off the news on Friday evening that Peter Laviolette is out as Caps head coach. Who should be the Caps' next head coach? Wait until you hear who Peter suggests. Uh, Peter also is going to tell us what the Caps should do with center of Genny Kuznetsov, where we are with winger Alex Ovechkin, and a lot more. Uh, No podcast or show talks Caps like this podcast does. If you are a Caps fan, trust me, you do not want to miss Peter Hassett later in the show. Before we get to some feedback. A couple of things. Uh, the Wizards, <laughs> uh, they finished the NBA regular season tied with the Indiana Pacers for the seventh best odds for the 2023 NBA draft lottery. Well, the Wizards on Monday lost their NBA draft lottery tiebreaker with the Pacers, meaning that the Wizards will have the eighth best odds to win the draft lottery, and the Pacers will have the seventh best odds to win the draft lottery. Zero surprise that the Wizards, who basically never have good luck in NBA draft lotteries, lost this tiebreaker on Monday. So bad news there, but good news if you are a Maryland fan like me. Terrapins football is going back to the script Terps uniform full time. The script Terps uniform, it is glorious and it is back. Uh, The school made the announcement on Monday afternoon, the script Terps uniform, a staple of Maryland football for some very good years, started in 1982, was used for the rest of the 1980s. From 2001 through 2010, the era of Ralph Region as Terps head coach, Maryland wore white helmets with red script Terps riding on the sides of the helmets. And since Mike Loxley started as Terps head coach in 2019, Maryland had worn the script Terps uniform at least once each season. But now the script Terps uniform is back on a full-time basis. It's a good look. I like it. Uh, You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tweet from someone who goes by the name Dad on Twitter. (laughs) Uh, Dad tweeted of her conversation with Kevin Sheehan, the host of the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast. Kevin was on Monday's show, episode 551, and we spoke at length about the sale of the commanders and what it means. Writes Dad, it's all about winning. Get people excited and you will attract younger fans. That will matter more than old fans coming back. Hopefully the new owner has better organization personnel. 
Uh, thank you for the tweet, Dad. Uh, the daddy has spoken! Who is your daddy, and what does he do? <laughs> yes, thank you, Arnold. Uh, winning, to me, will attract both younger fans and older fans. Uh, winning is the ultimate attractive quality in sports. Everything looks better and feels better with a team when it's winning. Everything about a team is perceived better when it's winning. And our football team has not won much over the last 30 years. Uh, the last 30 NFL seasons, 1993 through 2022, our team has made the playoffs a mere six times. 24 of the team's last 30 seasons have been non-playoff seasons. 24 out of 30. Let that sink in. Email from Connor Davis on the sale of the Commanders. Writes Connor, how long is it going to take for this organization to rid itself of the stink of Snyder? We probably, for this season, are having Ron and the rest of the GMs operating as normal. Same for Jason Wrong on the business side. And of course, many of the players who Ron has drafted will be on the team for years to come. So what do you think that the timetable is? Until we get a new stadium, a new front office, a new head coach, and another new name, will we ever totally rid ourselves of the stink of Snyder? Everyone has been so excited for the sale, but his hires and players still will be around, and the stench still will be present. On another note, and I don't think that I'm alone in this, I have become somewhat addicted to this absurd drama and controversy. Following the skins slash football team slash commanders isn't like following any other franchise. It's half a sports show, half television drama. I know that you always have said that winning will improve your podcast, but I'm not sure if I could listen to a Wednesday show during the season breaking down Sam Howell's third down scramble for a first down. Despite Snyder being a terrible owner as a content generator for your show, you can't deny what Snyder has brought. Do you think that having a regular NFL franchise that stays around 8-8-1 eight, eight, and one will be bad for business compared to what it has been like the last few years. Uh, love to hear your response. Thank you for the email, Connor. Interesting questions. Well, when it comes to the team ridding itself of the bad of the Dan Snyder, I do think that the potential exists for the bad to be gone sooner rather than later. Now, that would require the Josh Harris group hitting on a lot of early decisions and also would require some good luck. But the two big hills to climb for new ownership are football operations and business operations. Those two things could get a lot better quickly. Uh, the Commanders this coming season could be a playoff team. I mean, this is the NFL. Every season we see teams that did not make the playoffs the previous season make the playoffs. Now, a lot would have to go right. But, you know, if the Commanders get decent quarterback play and their new assistant head coach slash offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy does a good job, and the offensive line is better, and the defense is good for a third time in four seasons, then yeah, the team could be good again sooner rather than later. And if things do not go well this season, but the Josh Harris group next offseason revamps football operations with a good head of player personnel and a good head coach, then the team could be good in the 2024 season. The NFL is not a league in which you have to wait long for good people to have good results. The key is getting the good people. 
Uh, with business operations, uh, new ownership in and of itself may mean sizable upticks in home attendance and sponsorships. Winning, obviously, would help even more. And with the stadium search, it is quite clear that new ownership on its own is a game changer. I mean, the mayor of Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser, uh, she last Thursday evening put out a tweet that included a photo of a Sports Illustrated cover with Doug Williams off his Super Bowl 17 MVP performance as a Skins quarterback. Uh, the three-way bidding war of Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia that the team has so wanted for the stadium search. That three-way dance now well may happen, and new ownership is the reason. Uh, as far as interest in the team lessening, and thus, say, the listenership of this podcast lessening, uh, with no more Dan Snyder drama to discuss, I will tell you this. A, I think that a lot of people are sick of the drama, myself included. And so we are at a point of diminishing returns in terms of interest in the drama. B, in my two plus years of doing this podcast, nothing has led to an increase in downloads more than the football team winning games. Uh, There are other things that have led to increases in downloads, but the number one increase generator has been the team winning. The episodes for this podcast for the days after wins by the football team have done the biggest download numbers. And you know, it's also interesting. Uh, This podcast for last August, so training camp, did massive numbers. Uh, The episodes of the podcast around NFL drafts do big numbers. The episodes of the podcast near the starts of NFL free agency do big numbers. The point is this, The events that are positive slash offer hope, those increase interest in the team and thus increase the listenership of this podcast. People want to have hope. People, especially with this team, of it having been bad for so long, want the team to be good again. You know, there's a saying in sports talk radio. The saying is, good is good, bad is better. The truth is that bad can be better, but three decades of bad is not better. People are sick of the bad, myself included. Well, here's something that's good, very good. Catering by Uptown. Catering by Uptown is the DMV's number one catering service. It is a family business that prides itself on its signature dishes and flawless presentations. And Catering by Uptown goes beyond just food. Catering by Uptown offers personalized consultation and event planning assistance that is outstanding, including venue coordination, custom catering menu selection from over a thousand delicious dish selections, and a day of event coordinator who will make sure that everything runs smoothly. From putting together and executing a menu to picking linens to selecting an excellent florist, Catering by Uptown is committed to meeting your needs and exceeding your expectations. Whether you're having a wedding or a corporate event, an intimate gathering, or a gala, Catering by Uptown is the way to go. Visit cateringbyuptown.com and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. Check out the reviews, nearly 500 reviews, averaging 4.6 out of 5 stars. Visit cateringbyuptown.com. That's cateringbyuptown.com. And make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you.
All right, before we get to our guest, NFL insider Arif Hassan of Pro Football Network discussing the $7 billion cash offer of former Duke basketball player and former NBA player Brian Davis for the Commanders. Uh, yeah, Monday did have a few Commanders football items. Monday was April 17th. It was the first day of the team's offseason program. Uh, an NFL team's offseason program consists of various phases. It's not until later in offseason programs that you get actual practices. But for now, what you have are players at team facilities and the players are participating in meetings and the players are participating in strength and conditioning workouts. Uh, Player participation in an NFL team's offseason program is uh, technically voluntary, uh, with the exception of a team's mandatory minicamp. But the mandatory minicamp for the Commanders isn't taking place until June. The Commanders' offseason practice schedule is as follows. The first batch of OTA practices, OTA stands for Organized Team Activities, the first batch of the Commanders' OTA practices This offseason is May 23rd through the 25th. The second batch is May 30th through June 1st. The third batch consists of just one practice, which is on June 13th. Why just that one practice? Uh, Well, (laughs) as you may recall, we last June 17th learned that the NFL had fined Commander's head coach Ron Rivera $100,000 and had stripped the team of two OTA practices for the 2023 offseason. This due to there having been excessive contact during the team's 2022 offseason program. So the commanders this offseason are down to OTA practices. So the team's mandatory minicamp is June 6th through the 8th. It is worth noting that edge defender Chase Young reportedly was in attendance on Monday's day one of the Commander's 2023 offseason program. This is worth mentioning for several reasons. A, the looming deadline of May 1st for the Commanders to exercise the fifth-year option in Chase's rookie contract, an option that Rod Rivera and General Manager Martin Mayhew have publicly expressed uncertainty over whether to exercise. Uh, B, Chase's history of not attending all of Washington's offseason activities, and that clearly having bothered Ron. Uh, Chase in the 2021 offseason did not attend any of Washington's OTA practices. He did attend Washington's mandatory minicamp. Chase in the 2022 offseason did not attend the commander's first week of OTA practices, but was in attendance during the second and third weeks. Uh, Ron Rivera multiple times over the last few years has talked about the importance of Chase attending the team's offseason program. And I would not be surprised at all if these public expressions of uncertainty about whether to exercise the fifth-year option in Chase's rookie contract have been about motivating Chase to attend this offseason's offseason program. But at least on Monday, Chase was in attendance. You know, in the 2021 offseason, we could debate how big of a deal Chase Young not attending the offseason program was because he did have a great 2020 rookie season. But that benefit of the doubt now is gone. His last two seasons have been marred by first underperformance and then the badly torn right knee that he suffered in November 2021. It is time for Chase Young to be all in. Just because you're not mandated to be at something doesn't mean that you shouldn't be at that something. It's time for whatever issues that have existed between Chase and Ron to be resolved. And it is time for Chase to be the great player 
he was drafted to be. We shall see. Additionally, on Monday, the Commanders on Monday afternoon announced the re-signing of safety slash special teams ace Jeremy Reeves to a one-year restricted free agent contract. Uh, No surprise there. The re-signing of Jeremy Reeves as a restricted free agent this offseason had always been expected. Uh, The team at Reeves uh, could still work out a multi-year contract. Uh, Jeremy Reeves coming off a tremendous season from a special team standpoint. Jeremy Reeves on January 13th was named to the Associated Press's All-Pro First Team as its special teamer. He is just the second Washington player since the start of the 1997 season to make an AP All-Pro First Team. Uh, Also on Monday, the Philadelphia Eagles announced that they have agreed with quarterback Jalen Hurts on a five-year contract extension through the 2028 season. Uh, The extension reportedly is a five-year, $255 million extension that includes $179.3 million in guaranteed money. Not fully guaranteed money, but guaranteed money. There is a difference. Uh, And the extension reportedly includes a no-trade clause. Uh, It had been expected that Jalen Hurts this offseason would sign a mega money contract extension. Uh, well, uh, now that has happened. And for our purposes as Commanders fans, the takeaway is simple. The other three teams in the NFC East now all have QB1s on mega money contracts, while our team has a guy who is being positioned to be the team's QB1 on a fifth round rookie contract. Here are your average annual values, your AAVs for NFC East QB1s, or at least guys being positioned to be NFC East QB1s. And I'm using new money average because with Jalen Hurts, his extension isn't kicking in until the 2024 season. But Jalen Hurts, AAV of $51 million. Uh, That is an NFL record, by the way. Uh, The Dallas Cowboys, Dak Prescott, AAV of $40 million. The New York Giants, Daniel Jones, AAV of $40 million. And then <laughs> there is our guy, Sam Howell, AAV of $1.005 million. Here are the remaining salary cap hits in the contract of Sam Howell as a player who was taken by the commanders in the fifth round of the 2022 NFL Draft. 2023 cap hit of $960,400. 2024, cap hit of $1.075 million. 2025, cap hit of $1.19 million. Jalen Hurts, mega money. Dak Prescott, mega money. Daniel Jones, mega money. Sam Howell, cap hits over the next three seasons of $960,400, million, and $1.19 million. Now, none of this matters if Sam Howell is a bad quarterback. And of course, there's no guarantee that he'll even be the commander's starting quarterback for the 2023 season. But if he does end up being the commander's QB1 for the 2023 season, and he ends up being decent, let alone good, let alone very good. (laughs) Uh, The commanders could have a major competitive advantage in the NFC East for years to come. A solid, if not good, if not very good, starting quarterback on a fifth round rookie contract while the other three teams in the division are paying 
their QB1's mega money. From a roster construction standpoint, from a team building standpoint, from an asset allocation standpoint, the commanders would have a major competitive advantage over the Cowboys, Giants, and Eagles. Again, none of this matters if Sam Howell is bad, if he can't play. But if he can play, that is really good news for the commanders, and in more ways than one. Uh, No podcast or show covers the commanders like this podcast does. We'd love to have you on board. Now is an especially good time to advertise on the podcast with new ownership of the commanders happening. Uh, Advertising your business or practice on the pod will grow your business or practice and make you more money. And podcast advertising is very affordable. You very much get a bang for your buck. And podcast advertising works. Email us. See what we can do for you. The email address is the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Well, we now are one step closer to the Josh Harris group buying the commanders from Dan Snyder. We on Monday evening slash Monday night had multiple reports that the NFL has received the terms of the deal between Dan Snyder and Josh Harris for review, and that next, the league will review the deal and return it to the parties for alteration, if need be, or for signatures. Uh, Now, there is some confusion regarding what exactly is in this deal that has been sent to the NFL. I know, shocker, (laughs) there is confusion in this sale, which has had a lot of confusion, but The Athletic on Monday night reported that according to a person close to Josh Harris, the deal that has been sent to the NFL, quote, includes language to partly indemnify outgoing owner Dan Snyder for future litigation stemming from the many pending investigations into his tenure, end quote. So that seemed like a big deal, right? That Josh Harris is willing to partly indemnify Dan Snyder. However, sports business insider A.J. Perez of Front Office Sports, he later on Monday night tweeted that what The Athletic reported is false. Uh, And as I record this in the early morning hours of Tuesday, it is not clear what is true and what is not regarding Josh Harris's willingness to partly indemnify Dan Snyder. But make no mistake, there is every reason to believe that Josh Harris is buying the commanders and is going to be the team's new majority owner. Now, we this past Friday evening did get that report from WUSA 9 sports director Darren Haynes about this $7 billion cash offer for the commanders from Brian Davis. Uh, Brian Davis, former Duke basketball player, former NBA player. He's from the Washington, D.C. area. Davis went to Bladensburg High School in Bladensburg, Maryland. As you may recall, the sports junkies on 106.7 A Fan on March 27th reported that Brian Davis had put together a group to buy the commanders with an official offer, a cash offer of $7 billion. We since then had heard nothing about Brian Davis buying the commanders until this report from Darren Haynes on Friday evening. Haynes reported that Davis's offer to buy the commanders was made on March 21st. Haynes reported that Davis has the $7 billion ready to go that he's offering to pay the first billion dollars to Dan Snyder within 24 hours and then $6 billion within seven days. And Haynes reported that Dan is willing to indemnify Dan Snyder as a condition of Davis's offer. All of this sounds impressive until you realize or remember 
that Brian Davis has an extremely sketchy business history. Uh, Davis and former Duke teammate and former Wizards player, Kristen Leitner, uh, they have had various business ventures, but they also have had a few problems and have faced a few lawsuits, including Leitner himself at one point suing his own company with Davis for $10 million. Yeah, Leitner sued his own company with Davis. Uh, Also, a group led by Brian Davis and Kristen Leitner in October 2006 uh, reached an agreement to buy 70% of the NBA's Memphis Grizzlies, but the group in January 2007 missed the deadline to produce sufficient funding, and thus the group's deal to buy the Grizzlies fell through. So there is this history with Brian Davis. There also are some practical things, like if Josh Harris reportedly is buying the Commanders for $6.05 billion, why is Davis going so far beyond that with a $7 billion offer? Well, NFL insider Arif Hassan of Pro Football Network has written a very detailed piece about Brian Davis's shady past. Uh, Headline, Quote, Brian Davis submits unusual bid for Washington commanders raising questions, end quote. Yeah, raising questions indeed. Uh, the piece came out on Sunday. You can find the piece at profootballnetwork.com. And Arif is with us now to discuss Davis and also the sale of the commanders in general. You can follow Arif on Twitter at Arif Hassan NFL. Hey, Arif, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Uh, You and your piece on Brian Davis went through a number of uh, shady business dealings involving Davis and Kristen Leitner, who at one point, by the way, were part owners of DC United. But in researching and writing this piece, did you come across anything to make you think that this $7 billion cash offer from Davis for the commanders might be legit? Uh, Nothing that I saw indicated to me that there was any legitimacy behind the potential for this offer. Um, Again and again, every time I kind of took a look at the assets that um, Davis is purported to own or the deals that he's made in the past, whether it was with sports franchises or in real estate investments, um, I found financial insolvency on a fairly regular basis. So uh, I would be shocked if, uh, if he had the liquid capital to pull this off. Uh, Yes, liquid capital. (laughs) Uh, The level of detail in your piece on Brian Davis is tremendous. You go through how he has been sued for failure to pay back loans several times. And you also go through Davis's real estate dealings and this idea that he has $7 billion in cash. Uh, What are your principal takeaways from that aspect of what you wrote? Um, yeah, I mean, like just off the off the top, an inability to pay back loans as small as well, small to to billionaires, fairly large to me, but as small as you know, five hundred thousand dollars, three and a half million dollars, uh, particularly loans in connections with attempts to purchase sports franchises. He attempted to purchase the Memphis Grizzlies with Christian Leitner and a group of other people, and needed to raise uh, about two hundred thirty million dollars, two hundred thirty-two million dollars, I think, and he and he raised that money. Uh, with a number of background investors, uh, and he was unable to pay them back. One of them, uh, you know, went public and sued him. It was Scotty Pippen, of all people, uh, and uh, and he had difficulty paying him back. He uh, indicated that he had the ability to invest in, in real estate investments all across like the Eastern Seaboard, whether it was in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, New Jersey, uh, North Carolina. Uh, and uh, Sean Merriman loaned him money to develop property in Baltimore, Maryland. That fell through. He owed Sean Merriman money. Merriman had to sue him. He lost that suit. J.D. Holdings, a company out of California that wanted to expand their um, you know, mortgage holdings, 
lent him about five hundred thousand dollars. He uh, and Leitner were unable to pay back that five hundred thousand dollars. It became a, a pretty contentious back and forth between them. At one point, uh, after failing to appear in court several times, he was nearly held in contempt of court. And JD Holdings had actually—I didn't even write this in the story. JD Holdings had requested that the judge uh, request that the U.S. Marshals apprehend. Uh, Davis and Leitner in order to get them to appear in court. So pretty dicey, but you know they ended up uh, negotiating a personal settlement, um, which is not to say that his real estate investments haven't had a positive impact on some of the communities. The problem is he hasn't benefited from that. So for example, the West Village, uh, it, probably his only successful real estate investment that I could, that I could find um, is a thriving community in Durham. It helped actually revitalize some of downtown. He bought it for about $11.1 billion and then needed to secure, after buying it, another $11.1 billion loan. So he's $22 billion in the hole and then had to sell it for $10 billion. Uh, and so that I mean, that's tough. You can't cover your, your debts that way. So, um, you know, he he committed to a mixed use development after buying some property in New Jersey. Uh, that was in 2016. He had indicated to people that he would be able to break ground uh, on a fast timeline in six months. Uh, the last I checked, November 2021, no ground had been broken. No work had been done at all uh, within five years of that. So, I would be shocked if he had the cash to do it because there's nothing indicating that he's got very much liquid available to him and that a lot of it would have to be financed and it'd be very difficult for any financiers to trust him to be able to loan out or lend out significant amounts of money. Just like Leitner, it seems very much like he's got significantly more in debt than he has in assets. And part of the requirement for owning an NFL franchise is not just that you have assets, it's that you have liquid capital to, to put up front. We do know that Brian Davis has submitted this offer to buy the Commanders. How has his offer even gotten to that point? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. They they they've only accepted the the offer sheet, right? They're they're taking this as a as a means of investigating um, the the financial background. Essentially, they'll be able to to go through the entire process, which is a fairly rigorous process of determining whether or not you know he's got the assets he says he has. I mean, the same thing happened actually with Donald Trump when he attempted to purchase the bills back in 2014. You know, he had submitted a, a bid indicating you know kind of this is how much I'm willing to pay, this is how much I'm good for, these are kind of the assets that. I own that back me up on that. Um, and though the NFL did not tell us why they turned down Donald Trump, uh, his attorney, Michael Cohen, in a fairly famous series of congressional te testimonies, uh, indicated that during that time, he had inflated the value of his net worth by about double um, so that he had the credibility to to buy the team um, through artificial, which actually sounds very similar to what Davis is doing um, here, which we can talk about that in a second, um, through an artificial increase in uh, the brand value of his assets because it's associated with his name. And so uh, he essentially said that the Trump brand itself added $4 billion between the years 2012 and 2013. And the NFL was like, well, that's not, may or, that may or may not be true, but that's not liquid capital, right? Allegedly, the NFL didn't give us a reason, but I, I would imagine that that was part of the process for saying, you know, they're more interested in the Pagulas than the Trumps. We're discussing the sale of the Commanders with NFL insider Arif Hassan of Pro Football Network. So what Brian Davis is doing, how is that comparable to what happened with Donald Trump? Right. So the 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 question here is how exactly because the 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 Channel Nine story WUSA had indicated that um, and in follow up tweets by Darren Haynes had indicated that investors learned that the company that Davis owns. Uh, is worth $50 billion. 
um, which is a fairly substantial claim. I, I, I shouldn't have to flesh that out, but it's more than the market cap of like Under Armour, right? Like it, it is it is an enormous amount of cash to have or assets available to you. And it would make his net worth, if he's the sole owner of the company, which it's an LLC, it probably is, um, it would make his net worth $50 billion, which would mean that he's worth more than Phil Knight, the founder and owner of Nike, right? That, I mean, that does not appear very suddenly. It, it, people are not very surprised to find out that this person has $50 billion. It's a pretty rare occurrence. I mean, fast valuations do occur very quickly. Rapid accruals of, of wealth happen because value can be created essentially out of nothing. It's kind of one of the interesting things about our economic system. Um, just like, for example, the idea of Uber was worth billions of dollars well before they had the capital infrastructure to, to bring in the kind of revenue flow that would justify that kind of sale. And so the argument is that his company, Urban Echo Energy, which is very similar to the company that bought the property in Atlantic City that I talked about, Urban Echo. Urban Echo Energy is not a real estate development firm. It is purportedly um, a green energy firm that uh, engages in green projects and development uh, that uh, uses like renewable energy and, and, and lead certified practices in order to, to, to create green energy. And Really quickly, I also checked to see if the organization Urban Equity Energy was lead certified. As far as I can tell, it is not. Um, but that that could be a directory error. I'm not going to claim anything definitive, but as far as I can tell, it's not. Um, the claim is that the intellectual property and the assets that the company owns, which is somewhat similar to the brand, um, is worth $50 billion. Now, the intellectual property doesn't have to be, you know, Brian Davis's personal brand. Like that's not necessarily, it's not like a name image likeness thing. It could be the technology and the patents that Ur Urban uh, Echo Energy has. It, that is technically possible. Pharmaceutical companies are very vociferous in protecting their intellectual property rights, which themselves are worth billions of dollars. But that is very unlikely. I, especially in the green energy space, it seems pretty difficult to come up with a, a novel enough technology patent or application of technology um, that is unique that would be worth billions of dollars because it would represent a dramatic leap forward. I mean, there's not a single patent, for example, that any electric car company owns that's worth billions of dollars on its own. So this is a really shocking, especially the the, the phrase "realized" that he had. I mean, again. Very sudden. I, the only indications for Urban Echo Energy, that full name for the company that I could find, eight listings in uh, Delaware. Um, Delaware is famous for having tons of businesses registered there because of tax laws. Uh, and one in Virginia, none of which, uh, all of which were founded uh, within the last calendar year or very close to the last calendar year, March of 2023 in Virginia, January or March of 2022 in Virginia, January of 2023 for all eight companies listed in Delaware would be very shocking if they came up with uh, intellectual property worth $50 billion. Bottom line on Brian Davis, is he a con man? You know, is he just bad at business? Like, what's his deal? I, I like, I always, has, especially if I haven't talked to the guy, which I haven't, I always hesitate to, like, characterize a person. But certainly, if you ask me if I would be skeptical of doing business with him, I would be, right? <laughs> yeah, it could, it could just be that he's bad at business. I mean, it seems like he and Christian Leitner have parted ways as business partners. Back in 2016, Christian Leitner actually sued the company that he and uh, Davis together had founded, along with a couple of other real estate moguls, to get $10 million out of a company that was about to fail. So, I, I haven't seen any evidence that they'd engaged in business practices together since then. So maybe maybe they parted ways and maybe he's become a better businessman since then. I can say, though, like in, in terms of like the uh, 
And this would make him a con man if this is true. And I suspect something like this may be at play. Again, I'm not going to lobby an actual you know, accusation without any evidence. But I suspect that the reason that it looks like this company is worth $50 billion on paper when it was submitted to the NFL as an asset that he owns is because what you can do is you can say, hey, I've got a million shares of my company. I have sold several of those shares to an investor. That investor bought those shares for several thousand dollars. Multiply that out. To the millions of shares that I own, that means my company is worth $50 billion. And the NFL would have to determine, or the Bank of America would have to determine, if those shares were purchased earnestly, if that was an honest valuation, and if it wasn't, that would be capital F fraud. Um, and like, like jail time fraud, not like, not like tax fraud, like not like you're getting a fine fraud. It's like securities exchange commission type stuff. So that is a possibility. I, I would really hope for Brian Davis to say that that's not the case. And if that is the case, I would then further begin to wonder again, I have no evidence of this whatsoever. Um, I would begin to wonder the fact that Dan Snyder benefits from this offer existing for two reasons. First, because it increases the price of the commanders. Second, it's the only deal that provides legal liability for Snyder for the investigations. I would wonder if he had maybe a part to play in this deal coming together in such a way because it sweetens the pot for him and it makes it possible for other buyers to potentially throw in the indemnity clause that protects him from any legal liability that had been incurred um, while uh, the owner of the, of the Washington Commanders. Yeah, the Brian Davis offer is just such a flimsy, shady, sketchy offer, the likes of which is hard to take seriously. So realistically, how could the offer impact what Josh Harris has to pay or do to buy the commanders? But, you know, it would be something to go from Dan Snyder to Brian Davis, (laughs) given everything that we now know about both guys. Yeah, it would certainly be entertaining. Maybe not for Washington <laughs> fans, but like I think on the sideline for me, I would I would enjoy watching kind of what emerges from that. So you actually have been writing a good bit about our team lately. Uh, you had a piece that came out this past Thursday, headline, The Dan Snyder Era for the Washington Commanders Will Be Unforgettable for All the Wrong Reasons, end quote. I mean, the expectation does remain that Josh Harris is buying the Commanders. What kind of an owner of the team do you think he'll be? I mean, Harris, I wouldn't say so like to argue that an owner is hands on. um, I think for most people, that would be true for like true. I think for Washington Commanders fans, given how hands on Dan Snyder was, that would not be he would be relatively significantly less hands on. Right. So, you know, you get that out of the way. He's less hands on than Jerry Jones. He's less hands on than Dan Snyder. Uh, but compared to other team owners, you know, he owns uh, not just the 76ers, but he also owns stake in uh, technically the Pittsburgh Steelers, although they'll have to give that up, uh, but also like Crystal Palace, a minority stake. I think he owns a majority stake in the New Jersey Devils. My understanding is that he's very involved in the process of hiring and firing. He immediately got rid of the staff with the 76ers when, when he acquired them. Um, but much to the chagrin of, I think, a lot of fans at the time. Um, and uh, but, but he's a little bit more responsive to fans. Like, I think one thing, one of the many things that characterized the Dan Snyder era and you know, the piece that I wrote about him, it's so difficult to talk about what characterizes the Dan Snyder era because there's just so many different things that stand out. But one of the things seems to be 
um, not viewing fans as people, but as like ATMs, right? Attempting to extract every single possible dollar that could exist. That's the very much the Dan Snyder ethos, blocking off, you know, pedestrian park uh, walkways so that you could charge for parking, being the first owner in NFL history to charge for training camp, finding ways to monetize every aspect of the experience to the point of not even installing um, you know, an, an HD television in the stadium so that you could charge for like rental TVs and stuff like that. Like very, he, he's much more responsive to fans and he attempts to, uh, you know, for every move that's kind of unpopular attempts to assuage the fans in some way. He like lowered ticket prices, for example, when he acquired the 76ers, he added new seats to the arena. Um, and, uh, and so those things are like, and he did that with the Devils. He replaced their CEO. He replaced their personnel. Um, he very much wants it to kind of be his organization. And I think for the commanders, as much as, uh, you know, Jason Wright has been done wrong by Snyder, as much as people like Ron Rivera, I think just a complete clean out of the commanders makes a ton of sense. So and there's there's some great people that have been, just been put upon by Snyder, which would, would suck to see them kind of have to suffer through all this and then, you know, not be able to see it through the end. But it makes sense to just clean out the company culture uh, and 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 re- redo everything. He'll be really aggressive about attempting to pursue it. He's already attempted to to reach out to politicians, uh, both in D.C. and throughout, uh, I think, Virginia. I don't know about Maryland, maybe Maryland as well, um, about a stadium deal. Like he's very he's been very aggressive about finding a way to get a stadium. So I think that it's going to be an improvement. I know that 76ers fans aren't head over heels for him. They don't think he's the NBA's best owner or anything like that. Um, but, you know, frankly, bankers can't be choosers. I don't know. I don't know how else to put it. I think he'd be a pretty massive upgrade. And I think from an NFL standpoint, he'd probably be an average to above average owner. Uh, Josh Harris as Philadelphia 76ers managing partner and New Jersey Devils managing partner has shown himself to be a big believer in analytics. Now, uh, the word analytics can mean different things to different people, but uh, I am a big proponent of analytics. Uh, you understand football analytics well. Uh, you used to cover the Minnesota Vikings for the Athletic. Uh, the Vikings have as their general manager, Kwesi Adolfo Mensa. Uh, he's a big analytics guy. How important, how prevalent are analytics in today's NFL? I think I think most teams, and again, like you said, it depends kind of how you define it. Every team has maybe one or two exceptions has an analytics department. The question is what that department is being tasked to do, what areas of operations that they have an impact on, and um, you know how like well staffed, funded, etc. Like how supported that department is, because some analytics departments only help with ticket sales. That doesn't count. Um, and so, you know, some departments only help with college scouting, some only help with pro scouting, some only provide, um, kind of game analysis, right? Like go forward and forth down type stuff, you know, call a challenge here, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, some are really well integrated throughout the process. Like for example, with the Vikings, who, like you said, are very, you know, well-grounded team in terms of analytics. Um, it's throughout the process. They, um, participate in scouting. They advise the scouts, uh, both college and professional. Um, they are in like meeting plan, like strategic high level. This is the direction of our team type meeting plans. So they have an understanding of what's going on. Um, they interface back and forth with the coaches. It's very important that they develop a shared language that they know what they're talking about when they talk to each other. Um, it's, it's really well integrated about the operation. Um, they do all the marketing and sales stuff that an analytics team would do. Maybe there's a separate analytics department for that, but throughout the football operation, throughout uh, game management analysis, stuff like that, they're very involved. And a lot of teams aren't quite there yet. They'll let the analytics department handle some things. Like, so for example, um, a GM might be like, Hey, I need a new trade chart. Can you whip that up? But don't tell me who to draft. 
I just need a trade chart, you know, that kind of thing, right? Um, some are on demand, some have projects, some are just integrated, and so they're part of the workflow. Um, I would say that there's a long way to go, but like you said, again, it depends on how you define analytics. There's another element to this, which is that coaches have been using analytics since Paul Brown, right? Like the idea that you would look at film study and say, in this personnel formation, they are likely to run wide zone 76% of the time on first and 10. They've been doing that forever. They've been doing that since the 50s, right? That's analytics. I, I don't know why that wouldn't be, right? And so um, part of the reason it's become more well-integrated is because coaches are kind of understanding that a lot of the things that they do are in many ways driven by data. And all analytics can, uh, is, at least terms of that that language that you know that word is kind of mushy right um is provide us with a framework for using all the data you've been gathering for 60 70 80 years and putting it to practice and i think that that understanding has improved the the integration of analytics into football because coaches know that having a faster player is better and they know that a 40 time is a reasonable approximation of it. Now a data scientist can come in and say, Hey, well, here's how much of an approximation it is. And guess what? You said that this player was faster with pads on than he is on the 40. And Hey, we've got some data that kind of backs that up. I mean, that's kind of cool, right? Or, Hey, you know, when, when we disagree, when the, when the on field speed disagrees with the 40 time, here's what those outcomes look like. Maybe we should take this chance a little bit more often. Maybe we should take it less often. And I think that that is something that coaches and front office personnel have become much more amenable to, right? Which part of it's just the, ch- the coaches are getting younger too. So that's probably part of it too. All right. Great stuff. NFL insider Arif Hassan of Pro Football Network. Arif, thanks a lot. All the best. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Well, for the third time in six years, our Capitals are looking for a new head coach. Uh, the Caps this past Friday evening announced that the team and head coach Peter Laviolette had, quote, mutually agreed to part ways, end quote. Uh, Laviolette's contract as Caps head coach was set to expire on June 30th. By the way, the Caps late Monday afternoon announced that the team and assistant coaches Kevin McCarthy and Blaine Forsythe have agreed to part ways. Uh, Forsythe had been with the Caps for a long time. He joined the Caps as a video coach prior to the 2006-2007 season. He served in that role for two years, then was promoted to amateur scout in 2008-2009, then returned to the Caps coaching staff in 2009-2010 as an assistant coach, and he had held that position for 14 seasons. Change is in the air for the Caps. Uh, The Caps This season, missed the Stanley Cup playoffs for the first time in nine seasons. The Caps this season engaged in a sell-off prior to the March 3rd NHL trade deadline, but the Caps have made it clear that they are retooling and not rebuilding. Uh, And the Caps have major questions right now with multiple key veteran players, either due to injury or in the case of center Evgeny Kuznetsov, reported friction between him and the team. There is a lot to be thinking about if you are a Caps fan right now. In times of uncertainty with the Caps, uh, we seek wisdom. We seek counsel. And so I am very pleased to welcome back to the podcast right now, Peter Hassett. Uh, He is the co-founder of the great Caps site, Russian Machine Never Breaks, RMNB. Uh, You can follow Peter on Twitter at Peter Hassett. Uh, Peter is great at talking Caps, understands hockey analytics very well, and he is here to give us the proper perspective on where the Caps are at. Hey, Peter, how are you? I'm I'm wonderful, despite my preferred hockey team being out of the playoffs. <laughs> I hear you, man. Uh, well, let's start with the overall approach that the Caps are taking. A retool as opposed to a rebuild. Is a retool the proper path, or do the Caps need to embrace a true rebuild? What they should do, in, in if we're, we're being frank with ourselves, is, yeah, be a little bit more committed to the idea of a rebuild. Um, but they're kind of stuck in a tough position. Uh, they have a couple of different masters they need to serve, and one of which is Alex Ovechkin's chase to catch Gretzky's goals. And they do need to keep the team relatively competitive, at least on at the top line, to make that happen. In addition to that, sort of um, as a, 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 a waiver on Ovechkin's agreement to re-sign with the team a few years back, Teleonsis sort of promised them, really explicitly promised them that the team would stay competitive through that time. So they're trying to find a way to balance what is sort of an extant need to rebuild the team as injuries and age would sort of take claim. That said, I think they're going to try and improvise a little bit, which is something that Brian McClellan seems like he has been pretty good at at times, finding sort of marginal value in the, the free agency to, to restock the team. But it, it'll be harder this year than at any time in the past. Is there an NHL team that has successfully pulled off a retool that comes to mind? You know, Caps Senior Vice President and General Manager Brian McClellan on Caps Breakdown Day this past Saturday was asked that question, and he did not have an answer. Uh, You know the NHL well. Is there a successful model for what the Caps are trying to do? Nobody that comes close to sort of the, the severity of the system that the Capitals are in. This is an absurd example that I'll give just as a comparison. But you could see before, like, um, Brad Marchand's health and Patrice Bergeron, uh, you know, stuck around and and Pasternak got settled in Boston, that that team might have had a totally different outcome this year. But they decided, let's keep the band together. Let's do a minor restock. 
and obviously blow it up at the deadline, and they're the best team in the, the NHL, maybe in the history of the regular season of the NHL. That is uh, is far afield from where the Capitals are as possible, but there are situations where like a team feels like they're farther away from a Stanley Cup than they actually are. It's my sort of firm belief that even the worst team in the league could get competitive in three years if they really had to be. It also could the opposite way as well. All right. The head coaching situation. I know that you were not the biggest fan of the job that Peter Laviolette did as Caps head coach. Uh, what bothered you the most? He was, he has, has a well-earned reputation as a, as a coach who sort of suppresses his team that's offense. The, the offense really flowed through the blue line, which is great when your blue line is healthy and effective. But you saw when like John Carlson left the lineup that they just could not generate any offense. Or at least they couldn't generate offense for any stretch of time more than like two games in a row. Um, that probably was the most frustrating thing as the as the defensive core had problems, Orlov had injuries, and then left the team. Carlson had a big injury that he suffered right before Christmas. The team just had nothing they could do beyond that. Uh, and ultimately, I just don't feel like they were that creative offensively, that productive on shots and on attack. They really lacked rush attempts. They lacked... Uh, getting extra attempts after initial temp in the in the offensive zone, lots of stuff that honestly I feel like they probably depressed Alex Ovechkin's goal output over the last few years. Uh, if they had a sort of more offense friendly coach, um, I think they could have accomplished that. There's the other side of the coin, which is uh, favoring youth players, uh, um, or rather not favoring younger players in in the Caps lineup. This is hit or miss. I mean, I think something we all need to grapple with is yeah, Peter Laviolette clearly did not like the younger players in the Caps roster and, and, and on the farm. But there's also the possibility that those players are just generally underperforming. And I think only time will tell uh, what will turn up with them. I mean, I think they certainly have, uh, you know, NHL viable players in like Martin Farivari on defense and Alexi Protus on offense. But beyond that, I think it's a, a much more mixed bag. And we're going to have to wait and see if, you know, Peter Laviolette was missing uh, the, the the hidden gems, or if he was like, nope, this player's not good, and I'm not going to use them, and uh, and he was right. We'll see. In terms of who should be next for the Caps at head coach, uh, Brian McClellan on Saturday did say that he's open to hiring a first-time NHL head coach. Uh, the people who are coming up the most as candidates to be the Caps' next head coach are guys who have not been NHL head coaches before. We're hearing about Tampa Bay Lightning assistant and former Caps center Jeff Halpern. Uh, We are hearing about Toronto Maple Leafs assistant Spencer Carberry, who prior to joining the Leafs was the head coach of the Caps AHL affiliate, the Hershey Bears. Uh, Do you have someone who you most want to be the Caps next head coach? Um, All right, I'm going to appeal to everyone's heartstrings here. I am always partial to the guy they're not going to select, who is not a younger coach and not a first-time coach. Bruce Boudreaux would be a sentimental favorite. Wow. First of all, <laughs> he's, an, he's an offense first coach. He'd be wonderful for a Vetchkin stretch run. He's very well liked. He's also got a reputation for supporting younger players. If you remember like his early seasons with Washington, he was basically like the Hershey Bears whisperer. Uh, that said, that's a silly notion. That's just me being uh, an old hockey head. Uh, the real the real two guys were the ones you mentioned, Carberry and Halpern. Um, Carberry seems like he is the most likely option for a bunch of reasons. Former former uh, head coach of the the Bears and well liked inside the organization, well known inside the organization. A younger player that's sort of McClellan giving himself a setting up pretense for him going to be choosing this coach. I, I think he'd be a, a wonderful match, though. I have to admit he's the one I know the least about, um, and he's not from Maryland like Jeff Halpern. So there's a little bit of a demerit there. 
What's your assessment of the roster construction job that Brian McClellan did for this season? Yeah, uh, that's a really tough one. Uh, I thought that the team he built was good and viable, and his constraints were outside of his immediate control, and those constraints mostly being injuries. Now, injuries do increase with age, and he had he iced the second oldest roster in the NHL behind only the Penguins. So he is sort of on the hook for the team's likelihood to get injured, but uh, he didn't have a choice about uh, the, the the timeline that Tom Wilson and Nick Backstrom were on. And if we were to look at the, the team sort of with a, a cold heart, we would see that the team actually got markedly worse when they returned, which was also while John Carlson's out, so we should consider that as well. So he was really dealing with like core players, the, the veteran core of this team, widely beloved, but who may be past their peak in some ways, or in, in Tom Wilson's case, at least still in the middle of a rehab process. We don't know what Oshie's uh, viability is. We don't know if Baxter even wants to return. If he does return, what his role will be. Um, McClellan seemed to, to signal that he would be a fourth liner, which means McClellan you know, built a decent team. He did some really smart off-season upgrades. Eric Gustafson was one of the biggest you know uh, value adds you could have imagined, and he put them for value at the deadline. But the things that failed were, were the things that were structural problems with the team for the last you know four or five years, which is just that they're getting older and they're they're more banged up. So I guess I I am probably a little bit more charitable to McClellan than others might be. Uh, he, he is still in the same boat next season. Like if Nick Backstrom says I want to come back, Nick Backstrom's do that that big. What is he making nine point two a year? That's um that's something he's on the hook for and doesn't have a choice about. Uh, so. I mean, he made this bet and he has to sleep on it, but uh, a lot is outside the GM's hands right now. We are assessing the state of the Capitals with Peter Hassett, co-founder of the great cap site Russian Machine Never Breaks. Uh, Speaking of Russian, Evgeny Kuznetsov, uh, multiple reports of him wanting to be traded uh, slash friction between him and the Caps. Uh, Brian McClellan on Saturday flat out said that Kuzi had a disappointing season. What should the Caps do? with Kuznetsov? Well, uh, the situation is in, in bad shape. They could go one of two directions, and it, it seems like the most likely direction they're going to go in is try to deal with the offseason at what will be a profound loss in value, possibly some retained salary. Um, there is a, not a player whose value could be lower at the time of the trade than Kuznetsov is now. Um, you know how you hear that like you know, players don't tank, teams do? I think Kuznetsov was a player tanking. Do <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we don't see players play as badly as he did down the stretch. He he hardly had an effort there. So yeah, you could see the team trade him, but it will it will hurt the team. It will cost them assets or retained salary in the process. Maybe McClellan can can trick another GM into taking him, but it's going to be really really tough because McClellan because Kuznetsov's reputation is bad and well earned right now. The other part they could go out and say. Um, Kuznetsov has a new agent. Uh, if Kuznetsov is willing to say, all right, I will try out this new coach. We'll see how it works. Maybe I can increase my value over the next few months. Maybe I can uh, make a, have a negotiation about which teams I'll waive in my no trade clause. Maybe they'll say, oh, maybe, maybe this will work out and find another deal in the regular season. But I would say it's extremely unlikely that we'll make it to you know, March of next year and Kuznetsov still on the Caps roster. His time is He's ending here, which is a, a really sad. He's a, a, a well-liked player, and uh, 
one of the more fun players when he actually cared. Uh, this season was year one of the five-year $26.25 million contract to which the Caps signed Darcy Kemper as an unrestricted free agent last July. Uh, the idea was for him to be the Caps franchise goaltender. How would you say he played this season? Almost exactly league average, which is fine. We, like uh, The Capitals have at times had fantastic goaltending. We can remember 2016-2017 when they were like Jennings Trophy finalists and winners. Um, and uh, with Brayden Holpe, and then they had years where the the goaltending really did let them down, which is certainly true of like Samsonov and and Vanacek's last season, which was last season. And Kemper was brought in as a as a reliable player who had been known to exceed expectations in uh, Colorado's uh, year before they won the Stanley Cup, and even in Arizona where he was facing where he had a, a horrible defense in front of him and exceeded expectations. He did not do that same exceeding of expectations with the Washington Capitals this year. Despite the Capitals being a sort of, at least an aggregate, mediocre defensive team, they were not like a uh, an excessively bad defensive team, but he did not sort of step up in that case. So he didn't add value, and you would see certainly that like maybe his contract was worth more than he was in this particular season, but he also wasn't the liability. He wasn't the team. He wasn't the one letting down the team. So um, I think... If you don't care about the goalie, that's a relatively good thing, right? If it's if it feels like a, a neutral impact on your team, that's not the end of the world. I think they would like to see more from him next year. Uh, I think that they would like to see him steal a few more games, especially if the team is incapable of doing it otherwise. But yeah, uh, I would say a mixed bag and not a player that we would should think ill of, but maybe not one that uh, distinguished himself in his first year here. The idea with the Caps signing Darcy Kemper, of course, was for him to bring stability to goaltender after years of inconsistent play from Ilya Samsonov and Vitek Vanacek. And yet, in the 2022-2023 regular season, both Samsonov and Vanacek had better goals against averages and save percentages than Kemper had. When you look at what Samsonov did for the Toronto Maple Leafs this season and what Vanacek did for the New Jersey Devils this season... I mean, did the Caps blow it with those two guys? Or do we need more of a sample size than just this season? I think you have to take them in separate cases. Uh, Vitek Vanacek is on a fantastic New Jersey team. Uh, I will admit that I am a, a, a big believer in the New Jersey Devils, and I think they're a lot of fun and very good. And his defense, his, his goaltending performance for them had not been exceptional, but he had been sort of riding that wave. And especially at the beginning and the ends of the season, that team was unstoppable. And he racked up wins there, despite not having a, a, a you know a fantastic save percentage. I think he probably ended it at nine oh eight, nine oh nine, which is right around where he has been in his whole career. Um, so uh, you know, similar performance, but a fantastic win loss record. And maybe he'll go deep in the playoffs. I hope he does. Over with Samsonov, I think he performed much better for Toronto, and Toronto's defense was not dramatically better than Washington's was last year. They were relatively similar, but Samsonov really did take it up a notch, and I think that maybe it's a case where a player needed a change of scenery. You know, Samsonov did have a little bit of trouble his last few years, and uh, ever since he suffered like an ATV accident in Russia during an offseason, and then the, the COVID was not particularly kind to him, and like uh, he had some suspension issues, uh, like team discipline stuff, so like, obviously that relationship didn't work out, and I don't think people are going to wag their fingers at the Capitals, but they are going to say, you know, that happens sometimes, and, and you know, if, if we're going to have a problem with ex-Caps players seeing success 
it's going to be a rough postseason because uh, there's a really good chance that an ex-cap wins the Cup this year. Good point. Uh, Alex Ovechkin, uh, this season, his age 37 season, and yet he, for the regular season, finished tied for ninth in the NHL in goals with 42, finished 12th in the NHL in shots on goal at 294. Pretty impressive numbers. Is it accurate to say that he is still an elite scorer? I mean, are you seeing any signs of decline? That's a great question. Um, I have been proven wrong so many times in skepticism of Alex Ovechkin. I will say that in the past year, I would say maybe elite is not the right word since you could certainly cluster like a top five goal scorers, you know, the guys that hit 50 uh, above him. And obviously he was not part of that group. Um, That said, I think in the right circumstances with a fully functioning power play with a really good top line center, he could certainly be that guy again. Um, One metric that I like to look at is the rate of shot attempts that Alex Ovechkin takes during like five on five play. And he was right around like 18 this season. And I really like to see him closer to 20. Um, we've seen really marginal drops in his shot rate over the last few years, which doesn't mean he's over the hill. Doesn't mean he, he can't do it anymore, but it is like a sign that uh, he's not totally invincible. And we see that same pattern sort of represented in the games he missed. And obviously uh, injuries were a little bit more of a concern for Ovechkin this year than they were in previous years. And I know there were things that he would have preferred to have played through if the Caps were still in the, the chase, but he sat out for, for a good uh, week at the end of the season because he had to. Um, none of that means that he can't have another 40-goal season or even, barring something crazy, a 50-goal season next season uh, uh, if he gets really good support up there. I think we're, we're really looking at a player who is one of a kind. He is uh, unique. He's sweet, generous in, in the fancy Latin. There's no one like him in terms of their durability times their volume. And uh, maybe we're seeing signs of that eroding slightly, but I don't think we've seen him, and I don't think we will see him go off a cliff unless, well, knock on wood, I guess is what I'll say about that. Final question. A lot of conversation in Washington, D.C. area sports lately about a team ownership with the sale of the commanders and also with a lot of people furious <laughs> with the state of the Wizards. Uh, I'm just curious, how do you feel about Ted Leonsis as Caps owner? Has he been a good owner, a bad owner, a mediocre owner? What do you think? This might be the most controversial thing I'll say today. I think Ted Leonsis is a great owner. I, I don't know, like... You know how there's just maybe not the greatest reputation among billionaires out there. I think Ted's one of the good ones. I really do. Uh, I, I think he's been forthright about the Capitals. I think he's got a really good lieutenant in place in the form of Dick Patrick, who sort of runs hockey operations over there. Um, and he's forthright about what his priorities were. You know, he he was he had he had one of the most aggressive fire sales that we've ever seen in what was the 2004 and he did sort of hit the jackpot with Alex Ovechkin. He basically spent the next what 12 years making sure that that player and that team had an opportunity to win the cup when they could. And right when we thought that that window was closed, they actually managed to do it. But he seems like he's always been in line uh, in empowering at least Brian McClellan during his, his tenure to compete for the cup every year they can. And, Right now, I think we're seeing that question in more tension than we have in the past. Um, but but Teleonsis has given his promise to Alex Ovechkin, rightly or wrongly, wisely or not, that they're going to compete at least for the next two years, or they're going to try to compete for the next two years, which puts them in, a, in an awkward situation about like how truly earnest are they about that. 
But uh, overall, I mean, if you think about like the worst case scenarios for team owners, and we don't have to look very far to find one of those, uh, I think Leonis is on the other side of the spectrum. Uh, I, I, yeah, call me, call me a sucker, but I actually, I think he's one of the good ones. Yeah, I don't think that what you're saying is crazy. Uh, Ted Leonsis as Wizards owner, not so good. Ted as Caps owner, there really isn't that much to complain about. There are nits to pick, but the overall body of work has been pretty good. Peter Hassett, co-founder of the great Caps site, Russian Machine Never Breaks, RMNB. Peter, great to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Al. Have a good one. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Wednesday show, episode 553, will include a lot for you on the Commanders. Also, I'll talk Nationals versus Orioles. Game one of a two-game series between the two teams at Nationals Park is on Tuesday night at 7.05. Have a great rest of your Tuesday, and I'll talk to you on Wednesday. Who is your daddy, and what does he do? This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.